Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Iyer. Red Wings uh, dropped a 2-1 loss to Florida on Tuesday night. They played it pretty tight, but uh, you know, the one goal obviously not going to get it done. But they have generally looked better since their uh, 5-1 loss to Tampa the other day. And, and now they're heading into what I think looks like a splittable series with the Nashville Predators the rest of this week. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk some Red Wings prospects. But Prashanth, let's wrap this Florida series first. Well, I think, uh, you know, last season when we were talking about Red Wings hockey games, it was there was the quintessential Red Wings hockey game. You would start the game, they'd, get, they'd give up a goal really, really quickly. They'd get down 3 nothing, 4-1, something really, really fast. They may score another goal, but ultimately it was a three-goal loss. And that was just, that was the type of game that really defined Red Wings hockey. I thought... This past game against Florida is quickly becoming the prototype for Red Wings hockey in 2020-2021. Look solid at 5-on-5, muck up the neutral zone, don't give up a lot in the way of quality chances against, but special teams blows it and you're not not really able to score enough at 5-on-5. And this has just been kind of the classic Red Wings game this season where their defense at 5-on-5 is great. Uh, The special teams is absolutely abysmal. And they just can't make up for it with enough five-on-five offense uh, to pull it out. And so, you know, I think it, it was just another classic Red Wings game. Yeah, power play goes over three, including two huge chances in the third period that they get nothing out of. Penalty kill goes over one. That one, of course, is the game winner. That happens in the second period. And and so I think your your script is right on point. I mean, this is what the Red Wings are going to be uh, the, throughout this year. I, I think if, if they're able to, to execute their plan and it will go either of these two outcomes you just saw against Florida, it'll either go well and they're going to win four to one. That seems on the high end, but more like three to one. Uh, but that was, that was what it was before the empty netter, or it's going to go poorly and it's going to be two to one. And if, if it go, if that's, if their script hits, if it doesn't, then you're going to see that the first game against the lightning, you're going to see the second game against the Blackhawks. Um, those are the real, the real ones that you're trying to avoid. But if they have their way, I think a lot of their season is going to play out like this Florida series and, you know, getting a split, I think kind of illustrates why, because 50, 50 with Florida, one of the two, two or three best teams in the division so far by record, they haven't really gotten into the hard part of their schedule yet, but um, near the top of the central division standings, that kind of tells you why, right? Like this Florida team uh, is better than them. And, and so to be able to pull a split on the road, I think is kind of uh, in their, in their uh, mold, kind of the proof of concept. Yeah. And especially being able to pull out, what was your first win in Florida in 20 tries. So, you know, that's a, that's a big milestone for the Red Wings, even though, you know, we're not going to, they're not going to want to hear about moral victories and, and, and things along those lines. But I mean, Max, you're exactly right. That This was a, this was the kind of game plan that they want to go in 
and and execute and, and kind of exert their system on there. I mean, let's just take a step back and look at the Red Wings games over the course of the season. There have been three games this season where the Red Wings have given up more than 1.7 expected goals against at five on five. That's incredibly impressive. And two of those were the first two Carolina games, and Carolina is just a machine offensively. And so really there's only been one game outside of the first two games where Detroit has failed to exert their dominance really defensively at five on five. And so, you know, I think you have to be enthused about that, the ability to, against all types of teams, be able to muck up the the neutral zone, be able to limit quality chances against, be able to make life easier for your goaltender. But man, oh man, is it frustrating to do all of that, put all of that effort in, put all of that work in, and ultimately be undone yet again by a penalty kill that's killing at 70% right now, which is one of the four worst in the league, and a power play that's operating at 9% right now, which is one of the three worst in the league. Right? These are these are things that have to get fixed because it's going to be a different kind of frustrating this year where actually the team at 5-on-5 five five looks quite competent, but they are just are not able to pull it together um, you know, in the last, in kind of the key areas with special teams, you know, being the, the key here. I mean, you look at the four Florida games, I think Florida had nine power play opportunities in the four games and scored five times. Um, and Detroit, if I'm remembering correctly, did not score a single power play goal against Florida in, in four games. And so really, you know, you're talking about a Florida team that's now 7-1-2, and two, right? I mean, they, the record looks great. Detroit was better than them at five on five in every single one of those games. And truth be told, should have won every single one of those games, if not for special teams. So I think that's got to be the focus moving forward is you've got to be happy with the way five on five looks, but you have to find a way to turn, you know, something around on the power play or the penalty kill or ideally both. Yeah, I think the Red Wings have kind of moved into territory and I'm going to write about this for for Thursday. So maybe I don't want to tip the whole hand here, but but we'll we'll, uh, at least graze it. Uh, the the topic that is um yeah I, the Red Wings I think are finding a little bit of an identity here in their even strength defense and, and maybe their defense as a whole I think a lot of that has to do with some of the new faces on the blue line that's your Troy Stetcher and that's your John Merrill uh, in particular but you know I I think it's also the engagement level that you're seeing out of young players like Philip Zadina who are able to to kind of chip in and, and start to make this uh, this much more cohesive part of their game. That's the good part of the identity they're forming. Now, they also need to resist the forming of an identity of a team that is just special teams deficient overall. I don't think their penalty kill certainly needs to be um, perfect, but you know, if, if, if they're going to be a team that tries to suppress, you, you don't want a lot of your work going undone the, the second the other team gets a power play. You know, Florida won for one yesterday. Like, you, you just don't want that. And, and that's a small sample. You know, if, if they get three more power plays and the Red Wings hold them to one out of four, or we're probably not making a, a big stink about it. That's a fairly, you know, expected outcome at that point. But, you know, one for one, you'd really like to avoid if possible. And then the flip side, you know, I, I just don't see any reason the Red Wings power play needs to be uh, performing as poorly as it is. Now, now you can argue, I, I think you can make a case that they had pretty good chances on the power play yesterday. They had the one where, where they really struggled to enter the zone with the, the Zadina unit. But I'd also argue that in the zone, as Zadina unit looked probably better than um, than the Mantha unit did. So um, these are kind of just these little things. And, and you wonder, you know, if the Zadina unit is the one that's out there uh, when they win the faceoff and they start in the zone, maybe they have a little more success. That happened on the first power play and they looked pretty dangerous to me. So um, I think you're seeing identity go in two ways here. One that you want to latch onto, and that's the strong defense, and one that you want to uh, change while there's still time, and that's the the special teams deficiency. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. And and you know, some people might say, okay, well, maybe it's just some, you know, bad luck or random variance where the Red Wings just haven't, you know, necessarily gotten the bounces to go their way on the power play. You know, you see some of the goals that Florida scores, right? You know the puck hits Patrick Hornquist in the jersey and sure. floats right over Thomas Grace's head. And you're like, yeah, well, you know, why Why haven't the Red Wings gotten the same puck luck? Well, the, the fact is they don't generate anything on the power play to get that luck. In order to generate and, and, and kind of get the puck luck you need, you have to shoot the puck and then you have to be able to, to generate quality chances. I mean, Detroit is 27th in the league in shots attempted, you know, on the power play. And they're 26th when you're looking at quality chances generated on the power play. So no, you're not really going to get the puck luck to swing in your favor. 
if you're not actually generating anything that deserves uh, or, or really warrants getting that kind of luck, I mean, you contrast that with a team like Florida, you know, Florida uh, has been substantially better on the power play. I mean, they're fifth in the league at generating those expected goals uh, and, and kind of the higher quality chances on the power play. And that's why you're going to see them rewarded because they're getting more chances. They're getting higher quality chances and they're getting the kind of movement that over time leads to more goals happening. So Detroit's got to find this whole scale shift in their power play because it's not just a slump that they're going through. Oh, I agree completely. And, and and the one thing about playing this way, and while I do think that, you know, you look at the teams that, that they're in, in the company of in, in terms of um, what they've been able to do at, at even strength in uh, especially on the defensive side of the puck, we're talking about, you know, expected goals against per 60. It's some of the best teams in the league that they're in the company with. I mean, this is clearly something that you turn on this kind of defensive performance you can expect to be in games and you can expect to be a fairly good team as long as you're getting the goals from somewhere. I mean, the, the other teams in the top 10 along with them, they rank seventh, are Calgary, Vegas, Carolina, Dallas, Colorado, Minnesota, Florida, Montreal, Boston. It's it's kind of Detroit, Calgary, and Minnesota jump out there. It's the only three of those teams that I don't think have, maybe Florida, have a, have a real shot at winning the Stanley Cup this year. And so to be in that company tells you you're doing something right, but it's a really hard way to play that style if you're uh, to, while not scoring, because it, it demands this really, you know, adherent uh, dedication to what you're doing. And, I, you know, when you're not getting the results, you're not getting the wins that kind of maybe gets hard to, to summon sometimes. And so I think that's that's all the motivation you should need to get your power play fixed. But I don't think motivation is what they're lacking right now. I think it's uh, I think it's a little bit of, of talent, but I think they've got enough talent to be better than they are. And I think it's exactly what you said. And that's just getting more attempts, uh, getting more shots to the net. And, and that doesn't mean, you know, yelling shoot from the top of section 109 for, for the entirety of two minutes on the power play. But, you know, don't force don't force it when it's not there. But but do get it to the net and, and don't wait for the perfect, perfect look because it's not coming. Yeah, I mean, and you're seeing some of the signals. I think the last game, you know, Max, you said that well, that that's, you're seeing some of the signs of potentially uh, the power play heading in the right direction. Uh, if you watch the last power play and just go back and watch all three power plays Detroit had against Florida, they got away from just rotating the puck around the top of the point. I thought, I think you saw more of Bobby Ryan stepping out below the goal line to try and create those down low passing trials. You saw Mantha kind of throw out a couple of passes through the seam. You saw a lot more rotation into the slot. You saw them really use Larkin in that bumper position much better to kind of break down and dissect the defense. I thought they were able to generate great shooting lanes and great passing lanes. And those are the kinds of chances that ultimately result in, you know, a couple of those pucks getting deflected, tipped in. So I think you saw the signs of potentially a more competent power play with better movement and better rotation. Um, and with the handedness, you know, I really like the setup that they went with where, uh, you know, you were having the puck kind of running through Mantha on the right boards, but you had the left shot and juice up at the top. You had Philip Peronic, the right shot on the far side that creates lanes. You have Larkin, the left shot in the slot who was able to kind of generate the passing lanes, uh, and step out appropriate appropriately. And then Bobby Ryan, a right shot down in front of the net was also able to step out and kind of set up passing lanes. So I think they're starting to figure out the right personnel on the units and how the puck can move and how the quick passes is what's going to break down the, the defense. So potentially you get some improvement, but it all goes back to, you know, I think a couple episodes ago, we were talking about, can you win being a team like this? And the answer was yes. And you can be a really good team if you can be proficient on special teams. And, yes. you know, we threw out uh, an example of Minnesota wild from kind of the, uh, about 10, 15 years ago where, you know, they were an incredible defensive team, very poor five on five offensive team, but they were top 10 in both the power play and the penalty kill. And then kind of a funny fact is uh, on the broadcast, uh, Mickey Redmond was kind of discussing all the qualities he thought that this Red Wings team really should strive for. And, you know, Ken Daniels kind of concluded, so you want them to be the New Jersey Devils and, and of the 90s. And that's literally what you want. You look at the Devils Cup season in 99-2000, they're a top five power play team and a top five penalty kill team. But anyone, all anyone associates with that Devils team is the neutral zone trap in Martin Berdour. But that was a team that was very proficient at special teams 
that was suffocating defensively. And that's the vibe that Detroit is kind of looking to go um, right now. And they're succeeding at the tough part. The tough part being suffocating defensively at five on five. The easier part has to be now when I have the man advantage, how do I find a way to score more goals? And and I think if Detroit can solve that, you're looking at a bare minimum, um, a mediocre team. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, if the power play needs a little bit of remedy, the upcoming series that they have is a pretty big opportunity, I would say. The Nashville Predators penalty kill is the worst in the NHL so far. They've played 13 games. They are killing penalties at a rate of 62.8%, substantially behind uh, the other three worst teams so far in the PK, that being the Devils, the Blues, and the Red Wings, who are up about 70. So a team that is so far been the worst at killing penalties, and they've obviously played Tampa, they've played Carolina, they've played Dallas. Those are some pretty good teams, and um, I'm sure that's contributing to these numbers, but it's a big opportunity for the Red Wings, and what I would call a splittable series for the Red Wings as they come in here. Nashville is a bottom two team in the Central Division so far. I think they're a little better than that uh, on true talent, and I don't think Kevin Lankinen is going to keep the Chicago Blackhawks uh, at, the, at the rate they've been going since he got in there, but I this Nashville team is looking like they're shaping up to be a non-playoff team, a bottom half of the Central Division team. Uh, and for the Red Wings, even though it's on the road, I think that gives them at least the potential to split this if they play the way they've been playing. Yeah, I completely agree. In fact, you know, before the last Florida game, uh, I had said that the Wings were going to go 6-3-2 and two to finish out the month of February. I tweeted this, so <laughs> yeah. everyone filed that away. So now I'm already 0-1-0 here. So this is problematic. But the reason I said that is, you preview the rest of the Red Wings schedule this month. It is Nashville four times, it's Chicago four times, and it's and it's Florida, you know, two more times. And so these are these are the games that the Wings should be able to win. And if you're looking for special teams to get the boost, well, I mean, look no further than than, than Nashville being the team to do that against because Nashville's penalty kill is absolutely atrocious. Uh, the Dallas Stars' first game of the season started with them scoring four power play goals against. The Predators and the Predators right now are giving up the third most shots on the power play and giving up the third highest quality chances against on the power play. So, you know, this is a great team to go out and and get your power play right. You know, I think their goaltending has not been up to snuff where they thought it would be at the start of the year. And and as a result, you know, this is a a team that is ripe to take one, if not two games from. Um, so, you know, if you're watching this team right now, you're expecting Detroit to be able to go over there, continue playing that suffocating defense at five on five that really only Carolina has been able to solve. And beyond that, if you can get your special teams, uh, specifically the power play going, you know, Nashville's penalty kill does, or um, I should say Nashville's power play does generate some some decent chances. So it may not be the best time to get your uh, penalty kill back on track. But if you can at least get that power play going, get a few goals in the net potentially get Anthony Mantha and Philip Zadina going with their shots from there. I think you have a potential to steal one or two games here. This is Nashville team already not the highest powered offense uh, in the league. There are, they're going to be without Ryan Johansson, who's on IR. So that leaves kind of Philip Forsberg, obviously outstanding player. Victor Arvidsson, outstanding player. Matt Duchesne can be an outstanding offensive player. Um, but not a ton at, among their forward court. Now, they have some of the best defensemen in the league with Ryan Ellis, Roman Yossi, um, and then obviously Matthias Ekholm. So, uh, you know, certainly they're not an easy out by any means, but this is shaping up to be, I think, a, a really interesting series for the Red Wings. And if they if they can carry it over, I'm going to be I'm going to be really interested to see what they're able to do. Um, you know, I think they even played Duchesne on the wing the other night. Did I see that? Yeah, I think you saw that, right? I mean, they've gone with some really odd lineups. 
to to try and solve some of these guys being out. So that's interesting, and so I, I'm 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 curious to see how that series plays out and uh, and whether they're able to keep up how they've been playing. Jeff Blaschel called it a reset again after the the first game against Tampa, and I was very curious to see how that was going to play out. And and so far, I think to their credit. Um, they've been a lot better. Still not a, not a ton more exciting. It's still not been the most high-scoring games by any means, but that's how they want it. So credit to them, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's boring. It's not fun to watch. It's frustrating. You sometimes fall asleep during the game, and, and that's okay. But this is Red Wings hockey in 2020-2021, and it's keeping them competitive. And so, yeah, I think this is a great opportunity for a reset on a team that's just not playing that well right now in Nashville and missing you know, some key guys. We had a uh, mailbag question on the last episode uh, about doing something on Scott Wheeler's farm rankings. The Red Wings obviously came in ranked fourth and, and Scott Wheeler did a really nice job, I think, ranking and, and updating uh, all of our athletic subscribers on the, the progress in the Red Wings farm system. And, and the, the user wanted us to do a whole episode on it. I don't know if we can give it a whole episode, but what if we gave it a solid 15, 20 minutes here? You know, are, are you up for that today? Yeah, I think that sounds good. Okay, great. So uh, unsurprisingly, his his top two are Lucas Raymond and Moritz Seider. He's got them uh, in a tier by themselves uh, with some nice clips. For those who have not yet subscribed to The Athletic, if you would like to, go to www.theathletic.com slash wingsforbreakfast. That should give you a nice discount as you join. You can see all these clips, read all this stuff from Scott directly, but we'll go through it right now. And, and just starting at the top, Raymond and Sider. Uh, do you agree with that uh, order, Raymond Sider, first of all, and, and anyone who you think needs to be in that tier two? I, I'm guessing not. Yeah, I think if you talk to a lot of Red Wings fans right now, they're going to go, Moritz Sider is the best prospect on this team. And yeah, I mean, he looks absolutely outstanding, but I think we have to <laughs> we have to also remember that Lucas Raymond is an absolutely outstanding hockey player. He's the kind of hockey player that in most years, he is in the conversation for first overall. Um, and and it just so happened that last year was such a loaded year at the top that he's a guy that slips to Detroit at four. I mean, he's just an immensely talented forward. He has all of the tools that you want. He's putting up great numbers, uh, you know, for London, again, in a, in a minimal role. He's kind of outpaced his um, stats already from last season. You're seeing a lot of the growth with his ability to kind of attack the middle of the ice. I think Scott's got some great clips in there. You know, I can't argue with Raymond being the the top prospect in Detroit's system, even though I think a lot of people will kind of point and say Moritz Sider is obliterating the SHL and he's arguably the SHL MVP and top defenseman. Um, as good as that is, I think Raymond has the has kind of still that higher ceiling and that another gear to get to and is a year behind Sider in development. I think that's fair. I am sympathetic to the argument that Cider could be the number one prospect here. And uh, I, I think Lucas Raymond's excellent as well. I, I think he's having a very good year. He's nearly doubled his production rate uh, in the SHL, and, and that's very impressive, especially for a player who's still just 18 years old. And I do think that jump from 18 to 19 um, is one of the bigger jumps, and he hasn't made it yet, and more at Cider has. And and I think that's a big difference here. But, you know, I think it is worth noting, like, Sider as a defenseman, and playing way more minutes, granted, is scoring at a higher rate than Lucas Raymond as a defenseman at just one year older in the SHL. I don't think that means nothing. I think that almost that age and the, the position, in some ways, you could maybe argue cancel each other out. Yeah, I mean, I think you could. Yeah, it's just more. It's what more Sider is doing, I don't have explanations for. Like, uh, I'm going to just say that, like, he broke my graph. I had to change the axis on the graph and expand it to include a higher point total, like a higher point per 60, because there is no defenseman that's done what he's done in the SHL since we have stats available. And that includes guys like Rasmus Dahlin, who played over there, Matias Ekholm, who played over there. Like, these are guys that are in that graph and don't have the numbers that Moore Sider did. Now, that being said, you do have to temper that uh, expectation to a certain extent because Sider is doing it at an older age than both of those guys uh, did. Sider had the luxury of playing the AHL um, the year prior, which I think, again, developmentally wise, maybe talent wise, at least on par, if not a little better than the SHL. So you can almost think of this potentially as a step down for him as he's I think it next is. year. I think it yeah. is, yeah. And so you have to kind of keep all those things in mind, but you just have to look at it and be like, Wow, this is absolutely insane uh, what he's doing. I mean, you talked about him outscoring, um, you know, Lucas Raymond. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's having one of the best scoring seasons of any player that we have 
in the five years of data that we have. So I am very much sympathetic to that argument as well. I don't think it'll be as easy for him in the NHL. I think his ceiling is lower than Raymond's. And so even though statistically right now he is obliterating records, uh, I lean a little bit towards the guy with the higher ceiling being Lucas Raymond. I think he has a Mitch Marner ceiling to him. And uh, whereas maybe Sider's not necessarily quite that level defensively. I agree. And, and I, I didn't mean to, to say that I'm, I'm on that necessarily train, but I just am sympathetic to it because I think you've, yeah. you've seen such a step out of Sider this year. I, I just don't think there's that big of a gap personally. But um, and Al, Scott isn't saying there is either. He's got him in the same tier. And I, I think that's, that's right about right. And I, I think one important thing with both of these guys, I, I think you're right. I don't think Sider is going to score at this rate in the NHL. Um, even, you know, as he gets into his prime, I mean, he's, he's at about two thirds of a point per game right now. And that's really, really strong. It's stronger than I think is reasonable to expect from him. And I think Raymond, uh, is going to score more, obviously, as he gets in there, he's a forward, he's a highly, highly skilled forward. And I think he's a multifaceted forward. What I also think is interesting about both of these guys though, the offense is just a part of what they bring. And, and I think that's so important to projecting this Red Wings team out is that, you know, I, I think Raymond, it's still fair to say that the offense is the is the best asset he has. But man, he is a, a full ice competitor. And that's so crucial. And, and Cider, obviously, is the kind of defenseman who will keep you from playing in your zone too long, who can stop plays when they get into your zone, who can stop plays in transition, and who can put a guy... You know, it's through the gr- through the glass, so to speak. You know, it's it's they're multi-dimensional games, and so they, they for both of them it goes so far beyond scoring. I think they're very close, and and I ultimately agree with you that I think I'd have Raymond uh, a shade ahead, but I, I think it's really close, and that's more of a credit to Cider than it is a, a detriment to Raymond. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I, you know, to to dissect Cider scoring a little bit more, you know, uh, if you look at his totals, he's got. At even strength, he's got four goals, 14 assists, 18 points. Uh, Looks really, really solid. Just remember 11 of those assists are secondary assists. Those can be a little bit more random in their likelihood to to continue happening. And so really from a primary point standpoint, being goals and first assists, his point total is basically half or less than half of what he's actually got, which is why I'm kind of saying I don't think he'll score at that same level. But when you look at how the team performs when they're on the ice, that's that's the key, and that's what you're getting at, Max, is you know, we can measure that by looking at the amount of shots taken by his team relative to you know the other team when that player's on the ice. Both these guys are north of 56% on the year from a Corsi 4% standpoint. Yeah. So that's just – that's mind-boggling. 56% is kind of what Datsuk had in the NHL for the majority of his career, 56 to 58. He was a guy that kind of broke what you could do and so seeing these guys do that at the SHL level, that again means they're probably not going to do that at the NHL level, but it's still really, really impressive to see them kind of dominating their their competition to that extent. The the point that Scott made that I thought was really good on Raymond, and, and I think it has, you know, I, I maybe expected Raymond to really hit a stride after the World Juniors and get into this groove where he kind of ripped off a bunch of points in a row with maybe some renewed confidence. And, and just as the year closed, you know, kind of, it's just statistically, uh, and not just statistically, because obviously we're talking about a great stat in terms of his, uh, you know, uh, uh, shot share. But uh, you know, in in the in the point column, I think I was expecting to see a, an acceleration. But the point that Scott made that I think is excellent is Raymond is still right up there on on this Forlunda team, and so it, it is in part just kind of a Forlunda has been a lower scoring group in general this year, and and, and he makes that point in this article. Um, he's at 0.56 points per game. Their leader, which is Joel Lundqvist, Henrik's brother, uh, 0.65. So he's right up there with the leading scorers on his team at age 18. Those are all guys that are older than him. Jan Mersak, uh, Grand Rapids Griffins legend, Jan Mersak. Did he ever play for the Red Wings? He did. He used yeah, to wear Red number, Wings he legend, wore number 39. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. Right up there with with uh, with those guys and, and Patrick Carlson and Johan Sundstrom as, as the other ones. So. Um, I think it's been a really a really good season for Raymond, uh, even if maybe hasn't blown the doors off the the box score. Yeah, I I would agree. And again, when you're talking about Raymond, he's again not playing a whole lot on this really loaded Frolunda team. So point totals uh, are not the way to to evaluate him. He's not going to be getting the same kind of minutes as some of these other guys. Uh, you know, he's playing you know 11 minutes a night at even strength, like. Uh, and that's two minutes up from where he was last season, which is why his, his totals are a little bit better. But 
uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be judging him just on those point totals. All right, here's where uh, you and I, I think, are going to start to disagree. Here's where I think uh, both of us may disagree a little bit with Scott. Scott's next tier runs from players ranked 3 through 12, and I think I see at least one distinct uh, tier marker in between there. Um, obviously, Scott, I extremely respect his work, and so, uh, you know, I, I in, in no means trying to undermine that. It's just, you know, in my opinion, I think the next tier is rather short short and I, I would put that as Joe Valeno, Jonathan Berggren. He has those flipped Berggren, Valeno, um, but I would put another tier marker there and, and for him it runs down through 12. So let's talk broadly first. How many players are in this next tier beyond Raymond and Sider for you and, and who are they and in what order? Yeah, I have the probably the exact same second tier as you, Berggren and Valeno, but I would keep it in that order, Berggren okay. and Valeno, because uh, I do think Berggren's scoring upside is is uh, far greater than Valeno's. I still think Valeno is struggling to a certain extent to find both, you know, basically find that two-way game, being able to defend at the high level that the SHL is going to require. I think you were hoping he would have a little bit more success um, at the SHL. Now, granted, Malmo is not exactly a world-beating team, uh, but, you know, being stepping down from the AHL to the uh, SHL, you were kind of hoping that he'd have a little bit more production from a scoring standpoint, especially as mom was leading him. Now he's certainly picked up in the second half of the season and he did have a little scoring tear there. But for me, Berggren's going to be the guy ahead of him. I think the interesting part here is you could make a compelling argument that Albert Johansson belongs in this tier Mm -hmm. and that potentially Theodore Niederbach belongs in this tier although it may be a little early to call Niederbach for this tier. Um, so I think that's why I'd probably tentatively just leave it to, to Berggren and Valeno. And Scott has those two guys, Johansson and Niederbach, eighth and ninth in his. So, so that tells you, I think, a little bit about, you know, partly why he would include that as a tier. Because if, if Prashant or I can make that case for someone like Johansson to be up there around five, he's got him at nine. I think that that does make a compelling case for this as a tier. Where I draw the line with uh, why why I would put it behind Valeno and Berggren is because to me that next tier, th- that first tier guys, Cider uh, and Raymond, is guys who I not only think are going to make the NHL, but who I think are going to be very good top of the lineup NHL players. This next one would be a, a tier of guys who I think are going to be good NHL players and, and, and have a chance to be a little more than that. And so that's that's your Berggren and your Valeno to me. The reason I have I would put Valeno a little higher is I'm just that much more confident Um you know, uh, and that being a little bit for those of you who can't see me showing Prashant exactly how much more with my thumb and pointer finger, uh, <laughs> that Valeno's game will translate. But I agree that that Bergen has more upside. It's just a little bit more confidence that I have that Valeno's game is going to translate to the NHL level, getting to the middle of the ice, getting to the net, uh, and being able to finish plays on his own and not just set him up. But I think Bergen's playmaking is on a different level than Valeno's, and I think that is worth acknowledging. I'm just I'd like to be a little more sold that Berggren's going to be able to um, replicate that on the smaller ice because I think he he really does use that perimeter right now and the perimeter just gets smaller when you translate and I don't think you need to be I don't think every player uh, needs to be able to to really dominate between the dots it's not everyone's game and you're going to miss out on good players if you make it a prerequisite. Um, but it just makes me a little less sure that he'll be able to do what he's doing in the SHL right now. I, I think frankly both of them have second or third line um, potential. And, and and I think Berggren, you know, can score more. I think he has the potential to be the higher scorer. It's just, you know, I, I think they're close. I'm rambling now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's a fair thing to, and you can talk yourself in circles trying to make the, the argument. I think Detroit's had success with players similar to Berggren's skill set. They have. Uh, you know, you look at your Thomas Tatars, very similar uh, kind of playmaker who, who's had a lot of success in Detroit. Uh, you know, before him, you look at Yuri Hoodler, another guy who had a lot of success in Detroit uh, with that same kind of perimeter game. And I mean, Yuri Hoodler almost ended up a point per game player when he went to Calgary after he left Detroit. So, you know, I think Berggren's in that mold. Um, very, very talented with the puck. But you're absolutely right. When the ice shrinks, uh, you know, you're, you come in by seven and a half feet on each side uh, of the rink. It can become a little bit tougher uh, especially when you factor in the speed of the NHL game relative to the SHL game, it is very, very different. So um, I, I agree that Berggren's maybe got a little more uncertainty attached to him, 
Um, uh, but if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know I will swing for high ceiling over just about anything else. Um, and so for me, I think Bergman's ceiling is higher, and that's kind of how I lean that way. So you or I might draw a tier line there, and if you, but but Scott doesn't. And if you love swinging for ceiling, I'm guessing you don't have too big a problem with who Scott has next at number five. That is William Wallander from Moto. Uh, he was obviously the first pick of the second round in this past draft. Big, mobile, high offensive potential defenseman. Um, a lot of question marks surrounding this guy, uh, but certainly a swing that the Red Wings took in the second round. Yeah, I mean, he literally has every tool you want. Six foot four, great skater, likes to join the rush, has all the components of a, a prototypical NHL defenseman right now. If you're making your prototype Victor Hedman and you want guys like that, like he has tools. It's can he learn how to defend in his zone? His end zone defensive coverage has been atrocious. It hasn't really been that much better, in my opinion, this year. But you drafted him knowing he's a project. And so I think there are, you know, things that he's going to continue to work on. Do not expect to see him for a while. Um, I think you're talking three to four years of development before you're really talking about him being an NHL player. But I think you're almost hoping that for Detroit, he can be a guy like Yuri Fisher, a guy that the Red Wings really, really liked, brought along slowly and had a lot of those tools. Um, you know, the great shot from the point, the ability to skate, join the rush, the size. Fisher was maybe a little bit more physical than than Wallander is, but I have no problem with Scott having him at five. I might take a different defenseman at five and Albert Johansson. I think I have a little bit more certainty attached to what Johansson's doing, how his two-way game looks, how his instincts look. I mean, he's one of the best passers from the blue line right now uh, in the SHL. To me, he, I might... S- slot him above Wallander, but uh, really I have no problem with you saying, hey, Wallander's got the ceiling. He's got the tools. If he can just put it all together, you have a real stud here. That's exactly what Scott says. You know, the, the end of, of his blurb on Wallander is this ranking is about the potential of what could be as he begins to put the pieces together rather than what he is now. If he figures it all out, he'll have top four upside. And that would be a, a big get for the Red Wings at that point. At that point, if you're finding a top four defenseman in the second round, especially one who has offensive tools uh, like Wallander does, you're you're going to be pretty happy. But don't bank on it. And, and that, I think, is, is, a, is a key question with prospect rankings all the time is how much do you value the upside and the swings versus how much do you value the certainty? And so his next player, Michael Rasmussen, is a guy that I would strongly consider at the five spot. And Rasmussen is a guy who I don't think has all that much upside relative to Wallander, relative to Albert Johansson, relative to a guy that you mentioned earlier in Theodore Niederbach. But I'm very confident Rasmussen is going to be a middle six NHL center to me. Uh, and at worst case, I think he's going to be a fourth line NHL center. So, but but I I think I'm I'm fairly sold that he's going to be able to be a third line player. He's still pretty young here. I think he's 21 still until April. Um, I'm pretty confident that Michael Rasmussen is going to be at least a um, a third line NHL player at this at this rate, and that to me is is worth enough that I think I would put him at five personally. Yeah, I think with him you have less concern about him ever actually making it, right? I think there's no uh, he he's made it. He's played almost a full, he played basically a full season uh, already in Detroit, and he's gotten some games in this year, and I think he's looked much more, much improved relative to the last time we had seen him there. So, you know, I agree. He's probably a, a solid three, four center. I don't know that I'll give him middle six upside. I'll give That's him fair. third, fourth line, but you at least know you've got that. And I think he is a guy who could play on the wing on the third line right now and not look out of place on a lot of teams. So uh, I think the components are there. Uh, I don't have a problem with him at six. Again, the ceiling isn't there. You're not seeing, um, you know, the same kind of ceiling as you are with a guy like Theodore Niederbach, who, again, if he puts it all together, is a guy who can be a second line center that does all the things right. Um, and that's why I probably still have Niederbach ahead of Rasmussen at this point. But you're not wrong putting Rasmussen here because – at a bare minimum, you're walking away with an NHL player, which is not something you can say about a lot of draft picks. Yeah. All right. Well, if, if you want to contend middle six, I think that's fair. And I'd be willing to say, you know, third line, but I think it's a fairly confident third line projection for me with, with the acknowledgement that maybe um, this the possession elements of his game don't come and he has to play a fourth line role. But but I think with the way that, that he's coming along, I, I feel like they will personally. 
Yeah, it's it's still hard to say because, like you said, he's uh, uh, he's still so young, yeah. and he hasn't gotten a lot of time in Detroit, and he has had some injury issues. I think he is going to take some time to put it together, um, and hopefully, he gets that shot either later this season or, or early next season to prove it. And like you, I am an Albert Johansson believer, so I would have him also in that um, top six spot right right after Rasmussen. But but I, you wouldn't have to fight me too hard to get him higher. <laughs> I, you know, my my one thing with with Johansson is, um, you know, I, I'd like to see him bulk up more and to be able to, able to handle that, and I'd like to see him score a bit more for a guy who is a more offensive defenseman. You know, I, I do think his skating is a real weapon. His his willingness to join the rush and his skill are real weapons. I would like to see it translate a little more to the score sheet, but he's young enough uh, at 19 that I'm not going to be too worried about it right now. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, it's still uh, still early on him. Yep, absolutely. Um, next one up Scott's got is Antti Tuomisto. And Antti was uh, the first second-round pick in the 2019 draft. He's at Denver now. Uh, and he's at, University, he's at Denver. He's in his freshman year. He's 20, so he's a little older for a freshman but he's off to a solid start i think i would say let me look up his numbers here really quick but obviously it, a, a very weird year to be a college freshman just because of the the late start and then they started in a bubble and all that but to him he's still seven points through 18 games is is not uh it's it's not bad especially for for a guy in his freshman year who had that that kind of introduction to college hockey yeah you know he's the guy that i think i struggle with the most on how to evaluate him because you know, again, another big guy, six foot four, two hundred pounds. Um, but unlike Wallander, he's not a good skater. In fact, skating is one of his kind of significant detriments that he really needs to work on. And what I really wish I could do would be take Auntie Tuomisto's shot because he's got an absolute cannon and give that to Wallander and then just let that or cider. <laughs> right. Or give it to Cider. Uh, if you give it to Cider, then I think you have to cancel the NHL at that point because it's not going to be fair. Because it's Shea Weber. The, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's basically Shea Weber at that point. But if you give it to, to Wallander and you just tell him, okay, you just need to figure out your end zone coverage um, and you'll be you'll be great, uh, that would be awesome. But really, Tuomisto, I struggle with because he doesn't do the skating piece of things that well. And you have the same defensive deficiencies that Wallander has. But man, he's got a great shot. He's got a heck of a shot. Um, it's almost like a better version of Alex Cotton, who's later on in uh, Scott's list. Cotton's also got an outstanding shot, but yep. you know, I think Tumist is a little bit better. So I, I struggle with it because I want to know how much better can this guy's skating really be that would allow him to be a productive NHL player. For me right now, I don't see it. I'm also not a scout that evaluates skating, but I just have not necessarily, you go back and read scouting report after scouting report, or the are there really guys who make meaningful changes to their skating stride that make meaningful changes in their developing path? I can't think of examples off the top of my head that really fit that. And as a result, that's why I'm going to be probably a little harder on Tumisto than most would be. I think that's fair. And that's I have a similar concern about Tumisto. I, I can tell you I'm working on a few of my own Red Wings prospect stories right now, kind of a state of the farm system thing that you can look out for in the athletic. And it will have a little more on this. Um, but the point you raise is dead on of, of, of can the skating improve? I think there are some people that would tell you that it can, especially with strength, um, that those are important things. But you know, you know, you look at a couple of guys in, in in Tampa, and particularly Braden Point in Tampa, as a guy who is kind of known for having his skating improve from the time he was drafted to, to then on. And certainly in Detroit, you have the GM who was in charge when when Braden Point did that, and so maybe that gives you a little bit of hope. But he and Point are also extremely different players. Braden Point is a tiny forward, and Anthony Tuomisto is a massive defenseman. And I think it's fair to wonder if, if, if the same kind of one for one, uh, you know, methods work there. It's obviously different people and, and you never know. So um, I think it's a very fair concern to have. And, and so that's where Scott has him at seven. Then he's got Johansson, who we talked about a moment ago. And then he gets to your boy, Theodore Niederbach, the young right handed center in Ferlunda, uh, second round pick in 2020, a guy who can score, who's got skill, who's got a brain on him for sure. Um, the question with him also is skating. But I know you love him, so I'll give you the floor here. I mean, yeah, I think I said this in our draft episode that I just, I absolutely love the way he thinks the game. He, you know, sets up passes, the way he's able to play offensively. He's so smart defensively as well. Uh, I think he has 
all of the pieces here. And yes, I think you could make an argument that he does need to get a little bit better from a skating standpoint, um, you know, to really take his game, I think, to the next level. But I think just the way he instinctually sees plays before they develop and sets them up is something you just can't teach. And that's what I really love about him. Um, I think he's had kind of an awkward year this year because, uh, you know, Fralunda has been so loaded uh, that, you know, initially he started on the junior team, was way too good for the junior team. And the junior uh, team got their season canceled. Right. Then, the, then the junior team gets their season canceled. But, I mean, he was basically two points per game for the, yeah. for, for the for Lunda junior team. So then they call him up to the, the big league team. He's maybe not quite as ready, but plays about 11 games. So now he's been loaned to Moto, the same team that Wallander plays for in Osvenskin, which is, you can think of it as like the AHL that's in between the NHL and the ECHL. Um, it's kind of the middle tier league in Sweden. And he's starting to find his game after a slow start. So I I really love his game. I think he's a guy in two to three years you're looking at and saying, yeah, that's a that's the prototypical two-way center that I want, a guy that I can throw out on the second line and and be a shutdown center while also scoring for me. I think this is the kind of guy you bet on because, you know, for, for a couple of reasons. The skating we've mentioned, it could be the thing that holds him back, but we have mentioned that, you know, especially for this kind of smaller center player, maybe, maybe you have got a little bit of confidence that you can do some of that. I would actually have more confidence in Niederbach doing it, though, than most other prospects, particularly because he's coming off not that long ago a knee surgery. And those are things that can take a lot of time to really be yourself after. And, and so if... If that is at all hindering him and, and was part of the reason that he fell to the Red Wings in the late second round, you know, maybe you can really get something there, especially as he gets stronger and, and he gets that to full health. You know, I just think you bet on really smart players and skilled players. He, he's he's not big, but he's not small either. He's 5'11". I don't think it's going to be the kind of thing where without high-level skating, you, you cannot win. Um, I'd love to see him kind of take that intelligence and make sure that he's a really strong two-way player too i think that can insulate against a lot of, of concerns um but yeah i, I like theodore niederbach too and, and i'm very curious to follow him he's, he's doing well in the offense especially lately five points in 11 games overall um and, and like you said it's, it's not lighting the world on fire but it's pretty good and and for the first 11 games in, in kind of a new level uh, i think you'll take that every day yep yep he, he's gonna figure it out he's one to watch all right uh, beyond that, I think we get into some interesting territory. My next one would have been one of uh, Emil Vero or Robert Master Simone. Uh, and I think Vero is a, a very interesting prospect so far. He skates great. And, and you saw that at the World Juniors. Master Simone is a college guy, kind of one of those more, um, you know, down lineup with grit and skill forwards. The kind of player that I think you, you ideally want at the bottom of your lineup because they're not they're not just a pure defensive guy. They can score. They have skill. Um, but but they're going to be able to give you that full element. This is the kind of guy I want in my bottom six. Yeah, I would agree. I think Vero is probably the guy I would also have here. Um, you know, there was a lot of concern that he didn't have much scoring upside when you drafted him. You know, the offensive instincts weren't there. Uh, didn't really put up a lot of points in the Finnish Junior League. Wasn't really a guy who was billed as that. He's had a decent start in Liga so far. I mean, he's... Eight points, 25 games, uh, not which is not that bad for a player playing in Liga. And, uh, you know, he looked okay at the World Juniors as well. I thought, you know, in the seven games he was able to get in, he looked like a pretty decent defensive defenseman. Um, but, yeah, I mean, if he can give you some of that scoring upside from the bottom pair, I I really like him. I think he, he closes gaps quickly. He's a good defensive in-zone defender, kind of something different from a couple of the guys we've talked about already. And he's got a, he's a good enough skater to be able to lead the rush if he uh, is kind of gets that instinct into him. So yeah, he's definitely the guy I would have next here. Scott has um, Jared McIsaac, who is so tough to, to to place right now because he's been injured so often. You know, Scott's really what he's doing here is he's he's betting on the tools coming. The, the player comes back. 
and, and you ultimately have a player who can be a good defender. And, and so this is what Scott writes. He's always been an excellent defender. He rarely misreads odd man rushes or coverage. He's a strong skater with a sturdy build who sticks with opposing carries off the rush and rarely bites on fakes, maintaining a steady gap and playing physically when he needs to. He, there are times when he can cave under pressure. looks like he's processing the game a little too slowly, but he moves the puck clean and flat. His wrists are as hard, and above all else, he's reliable. That's from Scott's uh, prospect ranking of, of the Red Wing system. And I think it tells you a lot of why he would have this guy in the top 10. For me, it's just too hard to put him there um, considering all the setbacks he's had. You know, certainly I think everyone would, would love for him to be able to stay healthy. And, and certainly I hope he can he can get healthy and stay healthy. Um, but I think I have a harder time projecting him up there just w- without having really done that for, for the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, coming out of the draft, he was a very exciting player. I mean, he was absolutely dynamite uh, in his draft year. In fact, I remember kind of people, you know, throwing his name around with Ke'Andre Miller in that kind of uh, tier, and you can see what Ke'Andre Miller's done in uh, uh, the rain, in New York so far. I mean, just been really impressive. Uh, but then you know, McIsaac has shoulder on, or uh, surgery on his, I think, right shoulder, right before 1920. Then he has surgery on his left shoulder, and so now it's just like at this point, uh, he's just been having so many setbacks. You kind of want to see him prove that he's back to being that same player before you get too far ahead of yourself but i absolutely agree that if you know with scott that if he rediscovers that potential this was a guy that was billed as a second pairing defenseman uh, with toughness skating offensive instincts all the things you want in fact i think he would he was billed uh, in the prototype or mold of a better version of philip peronic uh so you know minus maybe the shot but i think that same kind of you know tough defenseman McIsaac being a little bit uh, more physical than Hironic, but still very good in all other aspects. But I want to see him prove it before I give it to him. I think that's fair. So the names that we've discussed to this point, that's the tier line. The next tier for that Scott has is Berggren, Valeno, Wallander, Rasmussen, Tuomisto, Johansson, Niederbach, McIsaac, Master Simone, Vero, tier line. And then it goes into the next one, which is Sabrango, Soderblom, Otto Kivenmaki, Alex Cotton, Giovanni Smith, Keith Petrozelli. Um, you know, the, the Smith conversation, I think is fascinating. We've had it before. I, I think he needs to be higher because you know, he's an NHL player. How can you have him behind some guys who, who you don't know if they're even going to make it? Um, and so I, I would have Smith higher. I think I'd have Sabrango and Soderblom in the tier above, but I think, you know, Scott is doing this a lot on upside. And, and so I think that is a, a big difference in the way that he or I might approach it. So if I if I have Bergen and Valeno in a tier of their own under the top two, then I keep the next tier the same size and I just swap in Sabrango and Soderblom. But I don't know how you feel. I also I I would need to add Smith somewhere higher in there too. But anything else? Yeah, as we get in there, I mean his last tier is kind of honorable mentions, and uh, it's it's like Lindstrom, Guylander, Greva, Barton, Elias, and Larson, Berg, Berg, Lund, uh, the defenseman from from Vostras in Sweden. Anything the rest of the way here in the prospect rankings that that really stands out? No, I think the only thing I do different is I wouldn't move Sabrango and Soderblom into that tier that we just created, but I would move Giovanni Smith into it. Um, but I would leave Sabrango and Soderblom in the tier with Kevin Mackey, Cotton, and Petrozelli. Outside of that, I think the talent kind of drops off quickly for Detroit, including likelihood of making the NHL. I, you know, I think I said this in our draft episode. I wasn't a huge fan of Sabrango, but uh, I will be very interested to see what his uh, kind of development curve looks like because he was a little bit harder for me to project. So I will certainly admit that. Uh, uh, my analysis of him and kind of understanding of him may be somewhat limited and may not be as accurate, but I didn't, I wasn't as high on him, but I think he belongs in that tier with the other guys. Yeah. All right. So those are, those are Scott's rankings and uh, we gave away the kind of the order and the tiers, but to get the good stuff and there is a ton, a ton of good stuff in here. You're going to want to go on our website and read it. That's theathletic.com. You can subscribe right on Scott's article, or if you want uh, to subscribe through our link, it's www.theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast. Uh, and this article is from February 7th from Scott Wheeler. If you want to go find it, I highly, highly suggest you do so. 
And obviously, we'd love to have you on board. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet. Internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We're going to go to um, the mailbag now, and, and we didn't put out a call today because I got a couple of um, really good questions via email, and that is always an option for you guys. I know that there's a lot of you who are not on Twitter. Um, I live there, so I apologize. That's where the mailbags come from is Twitter is because that's where I always put out the call. But you can always, always send me mailbag questions to my email. That is mboltman, M-B-U-L-T-M-A-N at theathletic.com. Just put mailbag in, in the subject line, and we'll try to get them out there. So we got two today. Bill George says, regarding Anthony Mantha, whenever he scores a goal like the breakaway goal versus Tampa, we always hear about how dominant he can be when he moves his feet. We've heard that many times over the years. If Larkin, Bertuzzi, or Ryan scores that goal, nothing like that is said because they play hard all the time. Do you think it's going to be alarming there's a need to keep bringing this up? So this is a little bit of a continuation of our Mantha conversation from the other day. I know what I think about this. I'll give you the Florida answer first. I mean, people always talk about moving his feet. I think the issue is you look at a guy like Mantha and he is massive, mm-hmm. right? He's six foot five. Think about his wingspan. I mean, most people, their wingspan, if you're the perfect Da Vinci man, is at least the same height as you are. So now you're talking about a wingspan of six foot five. Then you put a hockey stick in his hands that's about six feet in length. The guy can cover a massive radius. And I think people will get on him for moving, for not moving his feet, quote unquote. But in reality, I think where he's standing, he can cover a huge area and a huge radius. And so, you know, you'll see people say, why is he not moving his feet? Why is he not moving his feet? I don't think that's really an issue, you know, for him, because I think that's just what he's able to do. And so then you see a breakaway scenario where all of a sudden he turns on the jets and it's like, holy crap, he just pulled away from the defenseman. Why isn't he doing this all the time? Um, Contrast that with guys who are smaller, guys who are less talented. I think I made this case on the last episode that, you know what, like effort can make up for some discrepancies in talent, but if the, and it's not even so much effort, it's that kind of ability to extract 100% from yourself day in and day out which I don't think is an effort thing or a want it or not want it. I think it's actually a skill. I think that's why when you see guys like Larkin and Glenn Denning do it, you get really excited about it. You see it because it makes up for the fact that they're not as innately talented um, as a guy like Mantha. But I still don't think, you know, I just don't think it's as big of an issue as people make make it out to be, if that makes sense. The fallacy here is that nobody but Mantha ever coasts. You know, like it, every player in an NHL game coasts. Larkin coasts. Ryan O'Reilly coasts. Bergeron coasts. Anthony Sorelli coasts. They all do. You can't be moving your feet all the time. And what Jeff Blaschel will say is uh, when Mantha does it because he's so big, it really stands out. Now, Mantha does need to move his feet more. He can't coast 
quite as much as he has, especially at the start of the season. And he knows that, but it's not a try hard thing. It's just a, you know, it's that, uh, that one little, you know, extra, I don't know what you want to call it. It's just doing it a little more. It's, it's that little extra nudge. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't think that, that, uh, that Mantha is, is markedly, you know, like not trying. I just don't believe that. I, it, it goes against everything I know about Anthony Mantha and, and everything I observe about Anthony Mantha. It just isn't, you know, when, when you look at the TV and you see him coasting, it, it seems like, I don't know if it's because it triggers kind of this heuristic and this narrative about Mantha and, and we, because it has been a topic since, at least since I've been on the beat, maybe it, it jumps out more noticeably like, oh, there it goes again. But just look at anybody on the ice, and a lot of the time they're coasting. Luke Lindenning's coasting a lot of the time because if you're moving the feet, if you're moving the feet all the time, you're never going to be in the right place. Really, it's just really on the forecheck that I think it needs to happen more, or on the backcheck. But especially when you're in zone, if Anthony Mantha moves his feet too much, he's you know not in the right place. So these are just they're they're it's more nuanced than move your feet all the time or you're not trying it's not what it is you know to answer the root question why don't we hear it when when Tyler Bertuzzi or Bobby Ryan do that they don't do that they don't score those breakaway goals period because they're not creating that kind of separation like Mantha is neither of them is as fast as Mantha is or can create that separation so we don't hear it about Bertuzzi or Ryan because you don't see those guys score those goals right yeah I mean that's exactly what it is is Again, when you see people have that ability to extract, again, 100% out of them and have that kind of dogged mentality to get after it all the time, you become enamored with that because you equate that to effort. You equate that to want it. You equate that to they are actively trying to win. But in the reality, they don't have the talent to do what Mantha did. I mean, to go from a dead stop push that puck out in front. And then the key on that breakaway was he actually didn't move the puck. Uh, That breakaway was so immensely talented for him to actually throw his entire six foot five frame to the other side of the puck in one motion and then shoot back the other direction is not a play that your average NHLer can make. And so again, I will repeat this over and over. The ability to extract 100% from yourself is not a want it or not. It's not an on-off switch, but it makes you think that person's trying. And when you don't see the same thing in Mantha because he is six foot five and stands out, you equate that to him not trying or not competing. When in reality, that's just simply not the case. And other players aren't as talented as him to be able to make the plays like the breakaway that you see. That skill that you're mentioning of being able to extract everything out of yourself, I think that's something that Larkin has and, and makes yes. him great. And it's why we praise it because it is not common. It, right. That's exactly it. It's why, again, I like to throw NBA parallels out here because I'm a huge basketball fan as well. Look at Jimmy Butler. Yes. Jimmy Butler is Dylan Larkin in the NBA. Jimmy Butler was homeless at 13, community college at 18, went to Marquette, was still overlooked, and leads the Miami Heat to defeat the Milwaukee Bucks with a two-time MVP in Giannis and then a really good Boston Celtics team. And unfortunately, he loses a couple teammates, uh, you know, so he can't compete against the Lakers. But that is that is not common. That is something that's simply different. And that's what Jimmy Butler tells you is he's, he's just going to compete. He is always going to compete. And that's Dylan Larkin too. I think it's a great parallel but that's not that's not a wanted or not. That's just I can't get 100 percent out of myself every single day, no matter how much hard I try. It's just it's a skill that very few people are gifted with. And when you see that in guys like Larkin and Butler, you want to see it in everyone. But it's just not easy to come by. Yeah. All right. Last one. We'll wrap with this. Uh, Michael Giordano, a while ago, he and I had exchanged emails about ways to increase scoring or improve the game. And and one of his ideas was, um, what if you couldn't ice the puck uh, while killing a penalty? Like, what if you didn't get a, um, you know, free pass on that? And if you iced it, okay, no time comes off the clock. It's still a D zone draw for you. He wants us to uh, take a little time, you know, three, four minutes on that here and weigh in what, what what would you think about an, an improvement like that to to killing penalties i think it'd be fun i mean i totally agree like why are we changing the rules and helping the team that committed the infraction you know to a certain extent like oh okay you committed an infraction but we don't want to make it too easy on the other team so we're just gonna change the rules here so you can throw the puck down the ice and change whenever you want to i mean that doesn't make any sense to me 
they committed the penalty, make them play the same rules and and deal with it, right? Um, that being said, I don't actually think this would increase scoring as much as people think it would. Um, I think a lot of these times uh, these players are able to find ways to clear the puck without icing it, whether it's flips or things like that. Now, yes, you're down five on four. The pressure could be a little bit tougher than what you see at five on five. And then it comes down to a face-off. I don't, I don't see it as being as big of a boost offensively, um, given that it still comes to the stop of a face-off. And you think about the amount of goals that are created off of face-offs versus off of uh, rushes. I think they're. I think it's not as. It wouldn't be as big of a help as people think it would be. Let's just put it that way. How about at least in in terms of incentivizing the penalty killing team to try and get an, an exit and uh, and maybe take it in for a shorthanded chance? That's something. And, and if they're doing that, there's a chance of them turning it over and putting their team in a bad position and and those new kind of risk reward calculations. I think you could see a, at least a little bit of offensive improvement there just in, in terms of the regular um, gameplay element that, that gets reintroduced. Yeah, I mean, again, I don't know that you would incentivize them to necessarily carry the puck out. As opposed to do these little half flips that. But if you have the puck around the defensive blue line right now, like the money play is to throw it into the, you know, ice it into the corner. And at least at this point, you'd have to carry it over center ice. And at that point, maybe you're you're able to uh, or or chip it over center ice. But um, but at that point, maybe you're at least thinking about the trade off of if you were to take it in for a shot on goal. Yeah, I think. Again, I think that's there. I mean, depending on what the, the the defense looks like, if you're in that position. I would be incentivized to throw it back to my defenseman behind me mm. and kill some more time, sit on the puck, and then do a little chip flip out to, to center ice and you know, kind of go in that manner because the more time I have the puck on my stick, the more I can you know, kill, kill the clock there. But all that being said, I do think it would result in some increase in scoring. I just don't know if it would be as much as you necessarily want to see. If nothing else, it would eliminate one of the weirder plays in hockey, which is when a team uh, has the lead late, it's almost to their advantage to be uh, shorthanded and and play six on four so they can at least take shots at the empty net without getting an icing call if they miss. Yeah, I mean, six on four doesn't seem to add a whole lot more than six on five. So, you know, because again, having six offensive players in the zone kind of impacts spacing of a power play. So yeah, I mean, it certainly helps in that respect. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's all we got for today. Uh, the Red Wings, obviously, a couple games against Nashville this weekend. We will be back at you early next week to talk about those. And then they they finally come home. They've been gone for a while now with just the one little jaunt, uh, the weekend games against Florida um, a while back. And so they'll be back for a nice little homestand. Uh, and, and we'll be with you through all of it. So thanks for sticking with us. And we'll, we'll, we'll see you again early next week.